The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.gracefcwesterville.org. You know, in my former life in the sales world, uh, traveling as much as I did, if it wasn't airlines, it was in the car. I know some years I drove as much as 50,000 miles around the territory and things, and I probably got the equivalent of two or three masters during that time, listening to tapes nonstop. Um, All the great business tapes, you know, from all the business gurus, and then not to mention the Bible tapes from the great pastors around the country and evangelists. And it was really, in many respects, a very boring time, but in reality, it was a great learning time. And, you know, if you go into any of the contemporary uh, bookstores, Barnes & Noble or any of the others, you'll find that probably the largest section is the self-help section. Uh, You can find everything about dieting, about how to be a better person, how to achieve everything you want, how to sharpen your business skills or whatever your vocation might be. It's all there for the taking, and there's some really good stuff there. But I have a real concern because I'm seeing a trend in modern Christian bookstores of becoming self-help bookstores. You know, I want to caution you this morning because the Bible is not a self-help book. The Bible is designed to teach you and I about Jesus Christ. And all the catchy phrases and the catchy verses that we relegate to coffee cups and t-shirts and the things that help us be better in our lives and achieve what we want to achieve, is really to cause all of us to be like Jesus. The purpose of all this is to make us like Jesus, to bring praise and glory to him, not to give us the life we want. Now, for certain, there are benefits in your daily life, and of course, I, I would never disagree with that. But the reality is, is it's about a life totally focused and dedicated to Jesus Christ. And this morning, Paul is going to nail that about as hard and straightforward as he possibly can. Look at verses 4 through 8. He says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal and persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. The third chapter of Philippians says that Paul has learned to count all human effort as loss in comparison to Jesus Christ. To state the truth clearly, he uses the figure of a balance sheet showing assets and liabilities. And everything that he's achieved in his own life and everything that he has been born with and all the things that normal man would call just stupendous, he has put it on the liability side. And on the asset side, 
he puts Jesus Christ alone. So let's look for a few moments at human righteousness as being worthless. We must realize that human righteousness is nothing when measured against the righteousness of God revealed in Jesus Christ, and that God is right in insisting upon his standard. In the first place, human righteousness falls short of the standards set by God, and anything short of those standards is unrighteousness. Righteousness is one of those things like perfection that loses its meaning if it's divided. Perfection is a whole. Righteousness is exactly the same. You are either completely righteous by God's definition or you are not righteous at all. Jesus Christ said it best and probably the most important verse in all of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verse 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now think about that. Who among us can be perfect unless someone else is perfect for us? That's the standard, and all fall short of it. All falling short of it, we miss everything. So if you have a boat tied up at a dock with a five-foot chain, and one link breaks, the boat will be set adrift. And if you have a waterfall 50 yards down river, that boat will go over and be destroyed. It'll be destroyed just as easily with one link broken as if all of them were broken. So it's the same spiritually. Some, some break one link of God's law, and they tend to look the other way because, well, you know, we all break a link once in a while. But one link is as good as all of them. But all are adrift and headed for the waterfall. And that's what we mean when we say that all are equally unrighteousness in the sight of Jesus Christ. The second place, all our righteousness is polluted by sin. We do good things, but all of our good deeds, even the best of them, are contaminated by sin. And because sin is there, sin can always break forth into death. God must pronounce a curse upon them in order that true righteousness might be established through the work of Jesus Christ. So let's look at these true assets for a moment. In Philippians 3, verses 4 through 8, Paul illustrates these principles from his own experience. Humanly speaking, he had acquired the assets that any, the greatest assets that anyone could imagine. He was a Jew, and the Jews had always a special place in God's dealings. Paul came to admit that these things actually were hindering him from Christ. Think about that. All the assets, being a Jew, being part of the tribe of Benjamin, all these things were actually hindering. And I wonder this morning, could it be that the focus of our life is literally keeping us from God? And I'm not just talking about gross sins, but I'm talking about a consumerism that consumes the Word of God for our own delight and our own purposes. Look again at Philippians 3, verses 7 through 8. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I counted everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order 
that I might gain Christ. So Paul lists seven achievements of these verses, and they fall into two categories, those that were inherited and those that were earned. The first of the inherited ones, as we've seen already, is that he was born into a Jewish family. He was circumcised on the eighth day according to Jewish law. He wasn't a proselyte. He was a pure-blooded Jew born of Jewish parents. So that's the first thing that's critical. Second, he was an Israelite. Israel is the covenant name of God's people, just as the word Jew emphasized their racial origins. So Paul claimed to be a member of a covenant people. And then he was also of the tribe of Benjamin. When the civil war came that divided Judah from Israel after the death of Solomon, Benjamin was the one tribe that remained faithful to the tribe of David. They didn't go out and set their, uh, their sacrifices on other altars. They were only to be done in Jerusalem, and they remained faithful, and Paul was part of that. He was part of that. And Paul took justifiable pride in his ancestry. So from a pure birth standpoint, he's at the pinnacle of every requirement. And then Paul cites the advantages that he had won for himself. First, regarding the law, he was a Pharisee. Now, this was by choice. Pharisees knew the law inside and out. He had the greatest education taught at the feet of Gamaliel. And then he goes on to say that Paul writes he was blameless where the law was concerned. Think of the drive. Think of the focus with which he lived to be called blameless. I mean, here's a guy that had laser focus. He did it all completely and on point, and he could be called blameless. And not only that, Paul was a zealous Pharisee. His zeal uh, was to persecute the church or anyone or anything that didn't follow the law, even to the point of killing them if they didn't believe it as he did. That is real zeal, and that is a tremendous asset for getting ahead in your life. But the day came when Paul saw what was in the, in the sight of God, his own righteousness. And I suppose probably the most important word in this section is the one that begins verse 7, and that's the word, but. That but marks Paul's experience on the road to Damascus when he saw Jesus and saw his own righteousness as filthy rags. He thought before that he had attained righteousness by upholding the law. He had done everything humanly possible to attain righteousness, but now he knows, because of Christ, it's worthless. And that's the work of God in the human heart, isn't it? Paul came to the point where he opened his ledger book. He looked at what he had accumulated by his inheritance and by his own efforts. And he reflected that these things actually kept him from God. He then took the entire list and placed it where it belonged, on the liability side. And he called it loss. And on the asset side, he wrote, Jesus Christ alone. Now, when you get the mind of what took place in Paul's life, and we've mentioned this before, but when it says he counted them as dung, 
I mean, if you can imagine cleaning out barns and making a pile, that's how he looked at his own righteousness. His greatest achievements were worthy of that pile. H.A. Ironside wrote this, quote, He was not simply exchanging one religion for another. It was not one system of rites and ceremonies giving place to a superior system or one set of doctrines, rules, or regulations making way for a better one. He had come in contact with a divine person once crucified but now glorified Jesus Christ. He had been won by that person forever. And for his sake, he counted all else but loss. Christ and Christ alone meets every need of the soul. He work, his work has satisfied God, and it satisfies the one who trusts him. End of quote. Everything that before seemed right was now wrong under the true influence of God. You know, there, there is today a system of good that is swaying people away from Christ, and they don't know it. The Bible says that in the end times, even the very elect, the very elect will be deceived. And what is it that's deceiving them? Well, it's not gross sin. It's not debauchery and all these. Sure, some Christians get caught up in that, but as a whole, Christians are smarter than that. You know what's tripping them up? What we would call good. It's the message preached from some pulpits around the country that all of this is for your life now. That everything in the Bible you can use to have the kind of life you want to have, and it does everything but point back to Christ. Let me give you an example. Think of Eve in the garden. You know, when she looked at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, uh, it, it says in Genesis chapter 3, in verse 6, it says that Eve, when the woman saw the tree, she saw that it was good. Now think about that just for a moment. Don't think that the tree was this ugly, hunched over, twisted, thorny tree that had yucky, dried up fruit hanging from it. I rather believe that it was the most beautiful tree in the garden. It probably had the most luscious fruit hanging from it. It was not just good, it was extremely good. But Eve was told and, and Adam were told not to partake of it. But Eve saw that it was good. And she took it. And today, folks, many Christians are seeing what's good and being taken away from the purpose of the Word of God. Everything in this book is designed for you and I to worship Christ. From Genesis to Revelation, the entire book, its key purpose is to tell men about Jesus Christ and point us all back to Him. So all the great verses you, you learn, all the wonderful things that you take, they're designed to teach you how to be conformed to His image, to bring glory to Him. But today, the world is full of things that are good, and it will deceive the very elect. The best way to take God clearly is to read the Word of God as a lesson book to change you 
to be like Christ. That's the key. Paul counted everything else loss. And think about it. He was keeping the law. That's what the law was given. But you know what happens in today's society? We think politics is the answer. We think better laws are the answer. (laughs) Moses was given a law from the hand of God written by his finger, and it didn't change anybody. How do we think laws and government are going to help us? The only thing that will help America is surrender Christians who put him first in their entire life. So how is your balance sheet today? Have you exchanged your assets for Christ? Are you trusting in the kind of goodness that will never be accepted by God? Or are you trusting in the only one who provides an incorruptible asset? 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. He is the only true righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. And this has been the heart of Christians throughout the centuries. One hymn hymn writer wrote long ago, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Rock of ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. That is the true heart of a surrendered child of God. So whose righteousness then are we talking about? Philippians 3 verse 9, go back to Philippians, verse 9 says, And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now, next week, we'll take a very in-depth look at that word faith. And we're going to define, define as clearly and succinctly as we can what faith really means. But Philippians 3.9 is a summary of the book of Romans because it deals with the heart of salvation in one verse. Principles involved are first... There are two kinds of righteousness, the righteousness that comes from man and the righteousness that comes from God. And second, God cannot be satisfied with any righteousness that comes from human beings. And third, God is satisfied with his own righteousness, which he offers freely to all who will believe in Jesus Christ. And for those who believe, this is the object basis of salvation. So, Let's look at these two righteousness. It is not easy to describe the righteousness of God because it is an aspect of his character, and sin limits our knowledge of him completely. Yet we know that the righteousness of God related to holiness of God, and that both are seen in the law of the Old Testament and the ethics of Jesus Christ. The law is not God's righteousness, but is an expression of it, just like A coin is a representation of the die that cast it. And so righteousness of God is also seen in Jesus Christ. We see God's power in nature. We see God's principles in the law. But we see God's personality in Jesus. And it's infused with the righteousness. Jesus had once said when he was here in John 8, 46, Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? 
and they were silenced. And a few verses earlier, he said of his father, John 8, 29, For I always do the things that are pleasing to him. So even when Jesus Christ was on this earth, everything he did was for the Father. And when you and I accept Christ as Savior, our purpose now is to represent Jesus Christ and to point men to Christ by the way we live and by our actions and by our speech and everything that comes from us. And so human beings would like to think that they can attain God's standard righteousness merely by adding their own. But since the two kinds of righteousness are different in nature, it's impossible. Most people believe that goodness is really on a scale. So on the very bottom, you've got those who are at a very low level, murderers, thieves, and so on. And then maybe a little higher up, you've got the average Christians. And then above them, you've got some really super Christians that do really well. And then right above them, you have God who is perfect righteousness. But that's not the case at all. God teaches that there are two kinds of righteousness, His righteousness and human righteousness. And the accumulation of human righteousness, no matter how diligent, will never take a person to heaven. All our righteousness are filthy rags. And this is why, in order for any human being to be saved, he must exchange his righteousness for Christ. We surrender all of us, to him. And this is the critical thing that we need to understand here. So one commentator has put it this way. He, he related it to playing Monopoly. The game is fun, the money is colorful, but you'd never take the money to the grocery store to buy groceries. In, in our life, there is a different level of, which, of currency that we use. And there is also a different kind of currency used in the rest of the world. And there is different currency used in the spiritual world as well. There are people who think they are collecting assets before God when they are only collecting human righteousness. We must deal in God's currency. And that currency is Christ's righteousness alone. And that's the only thing that will save. The next thing we need to know here very clearly is that all of us are condemned. All humans are condemned until they accept Christ as Savior. Unfortunately, most people will not believe that. Therefore, much of the Bible is given over to showing why human goodness will never please God. And the book of Romans is a primary example of that. The opening chapters of the book probe the depths of human sin, exposing spiritual illnesses and indicating that the only, human, or only remedy for the human soul is Christ. And there's three aspects here to understand where the mind is apart from Christ. First, the only standard that matters are the ones that they devise for themselves. In other words, they look for ways around what Christ is doing. In Romans chapter 1, I want you to notice verses 21 through 28. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to them. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, and this is the tough part, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts, to impurity, 
to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Now let me pause here for just a moment. This section is defining the unsaved and their rebelling against a holy God. But I would warn you this morning that there are Christians who allow themselves to be swept away in their own lusts. And they go their way and they are guilty of worshiping the creature rather than the creator. And they design their lives for their own gain and their own goals and their own purposes and their own enjoyment. And they miss a life that God has designed for them. Continue in verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and consumed the passions for one another, men committing shameful acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. And since they did not fit or did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Could it be, folks, that what's happening today in America is God giving them over to their own way? They're not succeeding. They're being condemned by God. So what should be the reaction of the church? Do we stand and point out the failures? Do we stand and tell them how bad they are? Look what the Bible says. No. We are to act like Jesus Christ and show love and mercy and grace. We are to be the love that they don't see in the world. We are to be the mouths of Jesus. We are to be the arms and the feet taking the love of Christ because every one of us were once dead in our trespasses and sins. Every one of us were on our way to a Christless eternity in hell. But because of God's grace and mercy, He saved us. And there are many out there who are still dead in their sins. You look at what goes on and you read the paper and you scratch your head and you go, how can they think that way? Well, this is why. They've been given over to their own human reasoning. And that is depraved and full of sin. But if we are going to be the true church, we must show the most amazing love to those people, to any sinner, no matter who they are, because we have Christ living in us, and the Holy Spirit guides every one of us to be Christ in this world. That's why we're to be conformed to His image. And that's why when Christ was here on earth, and every time He dealt with sinners, He always dealt in mercy and forgiveness. He held, He healed. He forgave sin. People, the Pharisees came to him constantly trying to trash people and get him to condemn them based on the law. And what did he do? He showed mercy and he changed their hearts. You and I are to be Christ in a sin-sick world. We are to carry the message. And that is what's so critical for you and I today. There is an activity of the human personality that exalts its own reasoning against God. This way of thinking is to be resisted by all Christians. Look at carefully at 2 Corinthians 10, 
verse 5. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Every thought, every philosophy, every ideal should be captivated by Christ. In other words, whatever comes into our mind, we give to him to give us proper instruction. We give to him to lead us in the way that he would have us to go. And then their hearts are darkened. This is all sinners. Their hearts are darkened. God is not only truth, he's light. And when people turn from him, they walk in darkness, just as a person walks with his back to the sun, casts a shadow. The farther he walks, the longer the shadow. And the longer the shadow, it becomes darkest in his journey. And then, although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. No one who turns to his own reason instead of God's truth will admit, well, I'm living only a depraved human existence, making all kinds of mistakes. No, nobody talks like that. You know what they say? They say, I'm becoming wise. I'm enlightened. It's the believer in Jesus Christ who are the fools. Don't we hear that today? Do you realize that's exactly what Satan told Eve in the garden? Genesis 3, verse 5, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And that is the lie that the world is accepting today. Now look, God may be giving this country over to what they want, a depraved mind, but he is not giving you over. He has you fully protected in the hollow of his hand. So live like it. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world, 1 John 4, 4 says. You and I have the truth. All we're asked to do is walk and live as Christ did. There may be times of persecution coming. There may be times when life's going to get very difficult. But walking in Christ, you are protected by his hand. And whatever comes into your life will only be by his permissive will to bring glory to him. And this is what set Paul apart from everybody. He didn't care. For me to live is what? Christ. For me to live is Christ. And sure, to die is gain. But you could throw anything at Paul. Throw him in prison, chain him, whip him. Praise God. It's for his glory. That's what's coming for the church of Jesus Christ. Will we be ready to take that stand and walk? And when you make that stand and you live for Christ, I promise you the peace that passes all understanding will be your daily portion. And the God of the Bible, the God of Moses, Jacob, Isaiah, the God of Paul and Peter and Timothy and Ruth and Naomi on down is your God. And the same God who got them through every situation will get you through every situation. All he requires is a surrender and a commitment that we live this life not for ourselves but for him and that we don't buy into this message about it's your best life now. 
It's all for you now. Now, nothing could be farther from the truth. It's all for Christ and Christ alone. That is the key message that Paul is getting through. And that's why he said, everything, anything, all my achievements, everything that I counted wonderful, it's worthless for the excellency of Jesus Christ. So I leave you with a key question. Who is at the helm of your life? Christ or you? It's a question I ask myself every day. Nobody is above it. I trust you'll do the same. Father, we thank you this morning for your amazing grace. Lord, these truths are tough because they cause us to see that the Word of God has given us a life to live. It hasn't given us tools to get the life we want. Our thought process, our righteousness, it's all filthy rags. And we will be blessed through all of it. But when we surrender completely to you, we gain your righteousness. We walk in your righteousness. And it brings glory to you. Help us to understand today, Lord, that if we can just live our lives to bring glory to you, there is nothing more rewarding this side of glory until we get there and are able to praise you for days and days and years and millennia to come. Thank you for your mercy, Lord. Encourage us to be who you want us to be. And we'll ask this in Christ's name.